there, book gang. This is Amy Allen Clark from momadvice.com. Before we get started, I just want to say hello to all of our new listeners who have joined in from other podcasts. One way that podcasters grow their audience is to do guest spots elsewhere, and I've had the enormous pleasure of being a podcast guest on three different shows this month. You will find me over on Sorta Awesome sharing about my under-the-radar fall reads and a little bit about my personal journey to podcasting and how I came here. It's honestly a very personal interview that feels very vulnerable sharing about, but I know it's really important for you to understand a little bit about who I am. I'm also over on Bookend Homeschoolers, sharing how to run a successful book club of your own, and I joined Megan over on Mother of Reinvention, sharing about pivoting to your passions after 40. Now, last week's episode was particularly popular as we discussed the book shortage dilemma with a local bookseller, Kristen, from Fables Books. What I didn't get to share with you is my new partnership for our Patreon community next year with Fables. I want to make our Patreon bonus community as amazing as I can, and the 2022 Mom Advice Book Club year is going to be killer. Now, Patreon members will not only get all the exclusive interviews with our authors for our book club, but they're also going to get a monthly coupon code to take 15% off any book club selection, both in hardback and paperback. Starting December 1st, you'll be able to order each of our books through this fabulous independent bookstore and get full access to all my Patreon bonus materials. I'm in the thick of designing an incredible year for you, including playlists, printables, and exclusive bonus episodes. It's just $5 a month to be part of my club, and you will recover a good portion of that with our partnership. To learn more, head to patreon.com backslash momadvice. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com backslash momadvice. Today's guest is Lynn, who you may know from Lynn's Kitchen Adventures. Lynn isn't just passionate about food blogging, though. She's incredibly passionate about reading. In a beautiful partnership, she now runs a book blog with her daughter, Grace, called From Our Bookshelf. Lynn's family loves to read, and on average, they read over 300 books a year. This past year, Lynn decided to commit to a backlist book challenge, and I just knew I needed to have her on the show to talk about this, since this podcast embraces backlists and under-the-radar reads. Now, if you've not heard of the term backlist before, I do want to quickly define that for you and also why these books are so important to the publishing industry. Now, a backlist book is traditionally defined as a book that is a year old. Although backlist books have usually accounted for a big portion of sales in publishing houses, one really unique thing that happened during the pandemic is that backlist book sales went skyrocketing. In fact, it became a big topic at the U.S. Book Show in May. One editor reported that previously, backlist titles accounted for 35% of their sales, but those numbers flipped and now are accounting for 65% of their sales versus 35% for frontlist titles. 
Now, historically, according to Suzanne Donahue, VP and Director of Backlist Sales at Atria Books, almost all publishing businesses were focused on their front list. But over the past year, people have seen these backlists take off again. And while it's always been a backbone of revenue, it hasn't been a major focus of attention or nurturing until the pandemic. Because of this shift, marketing budgets are now changing and money is being allocated over a longer time span to maintain momentum to help sustain sales well into those backlist periods. Backlist books are also really valuable to publishing houses for some other reasons. Unlike new titles, which involve a writer's advance and promotion costs, backlist sales come without too much of an investment. Now, Jane Von Maren, the publisher of Trade Paperbacks at Random House, shared this. When you're selling a backlist book, each dollar is almost twice as valuable because there are so many fewer costs associated with each sale, that much more of what you bring in is going straight into the bottom line. Now, you may not know that backlist books can even drive business acquisitions. Simon & Schuster bought Macmillan in 1993, partly because its backlist included the joy of cooking. And in 1984, Penguin bought a small English publisher, Frederick Warren, largely for one author on its backlist, Beatrix Potter, whose children's book sell millions of copies a year. They shared, we bought the company and isolated the key treasure in there. Now I did find a fascinating piece on backlist books that I will link to if you're as bookishly curious as I am. The Future of Publishing did a really in-depth piece called We Need to Talk About the Backlist that breaks down why backlists are essential and how they can be marketed better. The article highlighted a piece on author Seth Godin and how he described what the backlist meant to him. And it was so perfect that I just had to share it with you. He described it as, the backlist is the stuff you sell long after you've forgotten all the drama that went into making it. How good is that? Now, I think I've set this up enough for you, so let's get chatting with Lynn. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. Looking forward to talking about books. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your blogging life. I know that you've been using your blog to connect with your college-age daughter, and I think this is such a unique idea for parents of older kids. Can you tell us a little bit about how you've been using blogging as a connection tool with your daughter? Sure. I've been blogging since 2008 at lynnskitchenadventures.com. It's a food blog. So I've been blogging a long time. And my daughter loves to read. Our whole family likes to read. And we don't really have a lot of friends in real life that like to talk about books. And so we started in 2016 from our bookshelf.com. And we started just posting books we like, just book reviews, book lists. And it's we just share the books we've read. So everything we post is books we've actually read. And it's been a really fun way for my daughter and I to connect with online people, for her to connect with other teenagers and college students that like to read. And it's been really fun to allow us to talk about books more than we probably wouldn't have if we didn't have the book site or she'll write something out about a book. And so I'll know more about what she's reading and interacting. So it's been a really fun way to connect with my daughter on the book site. Yeah. So with the connection, are you guys reading the same books? Are you reading different books and just talking about them or... 
Is this something that you're group projecting on with your blog? Both on the reading. We have similar reading taste. We read a lot of nonfiction, a lot of history. She enjoys like some like science fiction that I don't enjoy. I don't know that we've ever read a book together, like not since she was a little kid. So now it's often she'll read a book and she'll say, mom, you have to read this. Or she'll say, mom, I didn't really like this, but I think you'll like this. Or the other way around, I'll read something and I'll be like, you know, this really wasn't the book for me, but I think you'll really like it. Or you have to read this. This is such a great book. So I think that's a lot of what we do. And just the book discussion, like she'll read an interesting fact and she'll be like, mom, did you know this? Or I'll do the same thing. Like, did you know this happened in World War II? I think it's also stretched me to read books I wouldn't have otherwise read. And the same thing for her, like she's read some books I've recommended that she probably wouldn't have normally picked up. So I think it's really stretched us both to read outside of our normal, our comfort zone. It's been good for us to do that. And I'm assuming too, with you being a food blogger, she was familiar with that medium. So this wasn't a new thing for her because she's been watching you for years doing food blogging and now you're going to do this together. So was she really inspired by your journey with food to be part of a blogging? Yeah, because she was quite young when I started blogging. She was like eight or nine. So yes, she's always, you know, I'm always taking pictures of food and posting about it online. But even as little kids, they would help in the kitchen and I would do cooking with kids posts and take photographs and stuff. So she was very familiar with it. And it was a fun way to introduce her to social media. I was really careful when they were younger about social media accounts. She pretty much runs the From Our Bookshelf Instagram account by herself. Occasionally, I'll post on there. But it was a good way to introduce her to social media without giving her complete freedom on social media. So that was kind of fun. And to see her interact with people, she'd get all excited about someone she interacted with online. But I think, yes, it was very natural to her. It wasn't like teaching her a whole new thing because she was so familiar with what I had been doing for years. And it was easy for me. I love talking about food and I love reading. So it was kind of a natural thing for me to have two different sites where I get to talk about both. Linda and I have kids around the same age, and we also probably started this journey around the same time of blogging. And so our kids have had a very different experience, I think, than maybe the kids now that if you have younger kids now that are used to growing up in these kinds of mediums, we were a little bit of the groundbreakers for what that looked like and what we wanted to share online. I think it's really neat how our kids are adapting into these spaces as college students and older, as they have had that experience of just being the child of a blogger for so many years, now you're using that experience to continue to develop a relationship and foster that with your kids. That's amazing. You and I are kind of grandmas in the blog world, aren't we? I think you started blogging a <laughs> little bit fossil. before I did. Like we feel like I know that sounds terrible, but we are like I think we were early on in Facebook pages. At least I know. I mean, I wasn't super early, but that was back when bloggers. It was kind of a new thing for bloggers to, and now it's like everywhere. I mean, Bookstagram is a huge thing. Now, when we first started on Instagram, it wasn't. We've kind of seen it all change. And it has been fun to see, you know, what the younger generation is doing. I, I call on myself like a fossil to. in this space because we're like the people that you present <laughs> and you're like, this woman was the first time a mom blogger back in 2004. And they're like, nobody even knew what that was in 2004. And now it's not a big deal. Everyone can be an influencer. Anybody can be in this space. But back then, it was such a big deal to have these spaces. And I know for me, at least, my husband working in tech was the reason why I ended up 
putting my feet in this space. But if I would not have had a husband in this type of tech world, I don't know if I would have embraced it as much as I did. But it's really cool to see how everyone's evolved their space, especially as our kids get bigger, because they were the original crew for mom blogging. And they have now done all these amazing things that we get to witness. And it's also interesting to see how some kids are choosing to not live that kind of lifestyle because of the impact yes. their parents have on them. Yes, like I children. have. <laughs> yes. One of my kids has no social media account and has, and they're all college age and no desire to have a social media account. And I'm always trying to be careful now, especially like, what do I post online about my kids and get permission for stuff? Cause it's a hard, it's a hard balance. And when we started, the blog was your platform and then everything else stemmed off of that. Well, now like the book world and other things like Instagram, people have become famous just talking about books on Instagram without having another platform. The younger generation has really changed how it's done. Yeah, they can skip a few of the hoops that we were jumping through back then where you had to have the space. We did all the hard work. (laughs) Exactly. But I appreciate it. I love seeing how it's evolved and that there's less commitment necessarily because anybody can be blogging about books and, and also anybody can just start an account on Instagram. So it is very cool. It's a way to share a love of reading that we didn't have like 10, 15 years ago. I mean, you can have a bookstagram account or account on Instagram or TikTok talking about books. It's just fun. It's good how it's kind of made reading and books more exciting, I think, and maybe brought them to the forefront that they weren't 10 years ago. So absolutely. I love how it's made reading more accessible and that we have new ways of finding books and discovering new genres. I know even for me, at this age and and doing this podcast, some of the hashtags and the things that people are doing within the book space, I've learned about new genres or categories of books that I didn't even know about or would have never known about had there not been things like Instagram and TikTok to go to and look at what's trending and what's happening within the book world. So we're really lucky because we get to experience some ways of cultivating different kinds of bookshelves for ourselves because we have these great outlets. What I've discovered when I've been doing these interviews is that it's really interesting to hear how people are reading. So since you're a food blogger, do you do a lot of audiobooks and how do you make space for reading within your daily life? I don't listen to a lot of audiobooks. A lot of people I think assume I do. And I think that's just a learning style. I just have trouble focusing on an audiobook. I listen to a lot of podcasts, but not a lot of audiobooks. I think it's an attention span thing. I'll find like I'll listen to an hour of an audiobook and I just won't remember what I've just listened to. I do in the car. So I do a couple a year, maybe on a car trip. But in general, I don't listen to audiobooks. Others in my family do. My husband loves audiobooks. I prefer a physical book. I think I probably always will prefer a physical book. However, I love my Kindle and I love my Kindle app on my phone because it allows you to have a book no matter where you are. I don't think there's any one big tip or big thing that makes me read a lot. And I think a lot of people might say a similar thing. I think it's just a lot of little things that allow me to read a lot. I find books relaxing and I always have. It's an escape for me when life gets busy or crazy. I'm not a big TV watcher. So in the evenings to relax, I I pick up a book instead of turn on the TV. And that's just a personality thing. I also read multiple books at a time. And so no matter what mood I'm in, I have, you know, a couple fiction books and a couple nonfiction books. Usually I have four to five books going at one time. And a lot of people are like, I would be so overwhelmed. For me, that just allows me, I think, to always have a book. I'm in the mood to pick up. 
And just having the Kindle and the Kindle app and taking a book, like you read during doctor's appointments and you read when you're waiting for a kid, you know, to get done with something. So I think just always having a book with me. And I think that's the advantage of Kindles and even audiobooks for those that listen to audiobooks. It allows you to listen to a book or read a book no matter where you're at because you might not have a physical book, but you always have your phone with you. I, I think that's how I read a lot is, is just kind of fitting it in all those spaces of time. You and I read pretty similarly. I also have a really hard time with my attention span with audiobooks and tend to only do like nonfiction on audiobooks. That way I can zone in and out if I'm listening to something kind of like a podcast would be. I too have found the Kindle to be the most convenient way to read. I still love going to the local library and getting physical books, but I'm with you on the Kindle being the easiest way to like pick it up and and take it places and, and have it in my purse so that I always have a book with me. So I totally relate to that scenario. Now, one thing that you did that is a little bit different that I wanted to talk to you about is that you decided to do a backlist reading book challenge. So I want to hear what inspired you to do this and what to you qualifies as a backlist book so that our readers know where you were going with this challenge that you did for yourself. So I've always been a big reader and over the years I've done a few different book challenges, but I have found that I don't like to put myself in a really tight box for a book challenge. So a lot of people will do challenges that are out there on a specific book every month or a specific genre every month. I don't like myself in that tight of a box. And a couple of years ago, I did a nonfiction books for every state challenge where I challenged myself to read a nonfiction book for every state. And I liked that because it gave me like some freedom to pick and choose. I don't like like books challenges for myself that are like read a hundred books a year because then I find I focus on quantity versus quality or I avoid the large books and focus on the small books. When I do a reading challenge, I like it to be a very loose challenge. 2020 was kind of a mess for all of us, but I got distracted by a lot of the new and shiny books. And I'm not usually one to read what's popular or being pushed. I have a lot of books in our house. We like to go to bookstores when we travel. We like to use bookstores locally. So I have a lot of books. And in 2020, I got distracted by, I guess, the new and the shiny books and reading a lot of stuff that I normally wouldn't read on ebook deals. I picked up ebook deals or just bought books or had a to be read list. And I realized that I would be reading these books being pushed, especially as social media has become more popular. The publishers are working with a lot of people on social media or even like what Amazon will send you in an email is often the the popular new published stuff. I would just read these books and I'd be like, I didn't really like that. And it wasn't that it was a bad book. It just wasn't for me. When it came towards the end of 2020, I kind of felt like I didn't have a very good reading the year that year. And as I was kind of trying to analyze that and try to come up with a challenge for 2021, I, I knew I wanted to do a challenge. I knew a backlist book challenge would help me focus on reading the books that I have that I had bought. If I did a backlist book challenge, it would keep me from reading these new books that I see online that I might not normally buy. Because when a book's been out, if it's popular still, people are talking about it two or three years later, then I might read it and I might have more time to see reviews on it and what people liked and didn't like about it. For my backlist book challenge, I considered it anything not published in 2021. So I know there's different views on what a backlist book is, but for my challenge, I just challenged myself to not any books published in 2021 and to kind of keep myself from buying new books and to focus on the books I had, the books I'd wanted to read. And like I said, just not get distracted with all these new books that are constantly coming out that I may buy or try to read and just not not be my normal style. 
I love that. So you picked books, just things that you've been meaning to read. Were there any other things that you were looking for when you were trying to make your selections? Were you mapping things out ahead of time or you just kind of went with the flow that it just had to qualify under this particular time period? The time period, not to do anything new. But my goal was to read books I have and to not buy a bunch of new books. I have bought some books this year. And also to read authors that I had read. Like, for example, in 2020, I read Kristen Harmel's The Book of Lost Names. Absolutely loved it. But I had never read any of her other books. And so my goal was to kind of read some of those authors that I had read over the last few years and I really loved, but just hadn't taken the time to read their their other books because I kept getting distracted by the new stuff. So my goal was also just to go back and read some of these, maybe not so much classics, but just books I've been meaning to read for years and just hadn't gotten read yet. That is such a great idea because I can already off the top of my head think of several authors that... I read one book of theirs and never went back to read their prior books. And I knew that I loved it. So it makes no sense why I haven't gone back, except that I get so distracted by the new releases that are coming out and wanting to be part of the new discussions instead of going back into these, you know, tried and true authors that are creating great work that I've already loved that I just go back into their older books and try to read those instead. And so many authors now come out with a book a year or a book every two years. And so it's hard to keep up with all the new stuff, let alone go back and read the book they wrote five years ago. So this was a good way for help me focus on that. Kristen Harmel has a new book that I really, really want to read. And it'll probably be one of the first books I read in 2022, which is, I think it's The Forest of Vanishing Stars. But I didn't read it this year because I wanted to read her backlist stuff. It hasn't been a good challenge for that. I am just so impressed with this challenge because I am not very disciplined about things like this. And the idea of not (laughs) buying books is like heartbreaking to me, but also... My husband would be very happy if maybe I took a little break from all the book buying. I love the idea that you're just going back into things that you have been meaning to read. I know my bookshelves are overwhelmingly filled with books that I've intended to read but have not gotten to. So I think this is a great challenge for a lot of people. My my question though is, is this like a no spend challenge or other things that I see people take a break and then immediately as soon as like the 2022 year like crosses over your like go to the bookstore and buy like one million books to like wake up for everything on or is that just me? <laughs> well no, no, there is going to be that tendency and I have bought some books. I bought several of Kristen Harmel's books used her backlist. I keep bringing her up. She's kind of the author that's come to my mind. So I have bought some books and I have an Amazon like secret wish list and I probably won't even buy them on Amazon, but I have like a secret wish list of all the books that I've seen in 2021 that I think are interesting and I might want to read. For me the advantage is is that I'm not going to like go out and just buy all those. But But by 2022, you know, January, February, March, I'll be able to go back and look at that book that caught my attention and be able to read more reviews. Because oftentimes we see a book online or being pushed and it's either not released yet or there's not a lot of information on it. And so you can't see the reviews and what people did or didn't like about it. Or maybe to find a reader that you know reads the same as you and know, okay, they didn't like this book, so I'm probably not going to like this book. Or they love this book, so I'm probably going to love this book. So I think I do have a really large list of books that were published in 2021 
that caught my attention. I'm not just going to go out and purchase all those. I think it'll actually help me weed through the list better to know what I actually want to read and what I don't want to read. My husband, I think, is worried that I'm going to spend like $500 in books in January, but I really don't want to do that because that kind of defeats the purpose. (laughs) Well, I think sometimes too, what's nice about being more reflective about selecting books is that when new and buzzworthy books do come out, Sometimes the buzz is better than what the book actually ends up being. Your opportunity of having now a year of reviews, let's say, on a book and getting to go back and look at the star rating and what people are experiencing with a book may also influence your decisions moving forward with your reading that maybe that book that sounded really interesting at the time didn't actually have very good reviews and I don't want to spend my time on that. So you may have saved some time for yourself in the long run. Yeah, I think it's really helped me learn more on what I like and don't like. And I know our reading styles change. I mean, what I liked 10 years ago isn't necessarily what I enjoy now, but it's really helped me focus, I think, on what I didn't like about what I read, like the new and the popular in 2020, because I did like some of the books I read in 2020. I think it's made me more just aware of what I do and don't like. For example, historical fiction, because that's often what's on social media is the new like historical fiction books is I've learned that I don't tend to like historical fiction books about a person, but I like historical fiction books about a time period or place. And the reason is when you're reading a historical fiction book about a person, it's not to say it's a bad book or a bad written book. There's more liberties taken with history just because that's what historical fiction is. And so I find I don't like those. And so I've really realized that in 2020, a lot of the books I didn't like were like historical fiction books based on a person. But then I loved books, other books based on a specific time period that had like, you know, maybe World War II. Like I love World War II historical fiction, but I don't necessarily want to read historical fiction about Winston Churchill, if that makes sense. But I think this challenge and paying more attention to what I didn't didn't like in 2020 and even in 2021 has made me really, I think, able to better understand what I like as a reader for myself. And not to say it's a bad book or a bad author. I think we just all have different reading tastes. And what I like, you may love a book, a historical fiction book about Winston Churchill, but I might not. And it's just, I think, really learning our reading styles and taste is helpful as readers. Yeah. Historical fiction is one of those things that I think everyone has a certain palette for that some people are gravitating towards certain time periods or they are searching for more character development. I know for me, World War II era books are usually my favorite type of books to read. I always learn something new from that. But it's nice to also expand and think about, am I choosing a book because I gravitate towards characters? Am I looking for a particular setting? Am I looking for a particular location or time period? So it's it's neat that you are refining what you define as your favorite type of historical fiction through a challenge like this. Yeah. And I think not just with historical fiction, I like nonfiction. I read a lot of nonfiction and I like memoirs and really hard books. Like I don't mind reading a book like The Glass Castle. It's a really hard memoir dealing with difficult subjects. And I'm realizing that that kind of translates to fiction for me. I don't mind reading a fiction book that's a really hard, difficult subject that a lot of people might not like. They like kind of the lighter, easier reads. But again, I really think doing a, an occasional challenge or a challenge like this really makes you just pay more attention to your reading and style and taste and what you like. Because I really hadn't put that connection together that when you look at all the fiction books that I have loved and or not liked over the last couple of years, and most of them are like these hard, deep 
fiction books that really are similar to reading, you know, a really hard or difficult topic memoir. I love that. So listeners, you're going to be excited because I had Lynn bring to the table five of her favorite books that she read over her backlist challenge so that we can feel a little bit more challenged to not pick up the new book and go back over time and look at some of the books that we might have missed. I am going to share this list with you on our show notes, but I'm also going to talk it through with Lynn and learn about why certain stories resonated with her. So Murder on the Orient Express and Agatha Christie ended up being something that Lynn enjoyed. And I want to hear about this because if you can believe it, I've never read Agatha Christie and I've always been curious. And I feel like it's a big, like I should have a reader confession type of episode because Agatha Christie is something that I feel like everyone has read. And if I told you all the horror stories, like I haven't actually finished Harry Potter and there are certain things about me that are maybe disappointing to hear. Maybe you're disappointed in this, but I've never read Agatha Christie. So Murder on the Orient Express was one that you had said that was notable of your years. Do you want to tell us a little bit about it? Well, I'm the same way. The reason Agatha Christie is on my list is because I felt like I should have read it and I had never read it. We owned multiple of her books. To make you feel better, I have never read Harry Potter. So my um, kids have, but I have not. So I think you can only read so much. There's a lot of books out there. Like there's only so much time and that's, you know, we read what catches our attention. But Agatha Christie, I like murder. I tend to like more cozy mystery. And I don't think Agatha Christie's not considered cozy mystery, but I don't like a lot of graphic gory details or I'm not a thriller reader. My daughter loves Agatha Christie. She's told me for several years, mom, you really, you need to read Agatha Christie. So I asked her which one I should start with. And she recommended recommended Murder on the Orient Express. I've now read three other Agatha Christie books this year. So I think this challenge, I mean, Agatha Christie was written in like the 1930s. And so it forced, not forced me, but it encouraged me to pick up Agatha Christie that I've been meaning to read, like you said, forever. I feel like this is a book I should have read years and years ago. I loved it. I don't see myself like mass reading Agatha Christie now, but I definitely see myself picking up one or two a year, maybe in the fall and just kind of slowly reading all of her books. So again, the challenge helped me pick up a book that I've been meaning to read forever. And if you have not read Agatha Christie and you like more like a cozy mystery, I I, I recommend it. There's a puzzle in there that makes you think without like figuring out the murder. I can see why she's, her books have held the test of time and are considered like classic type books because they are really good. Oh, I love it. I love that you did that because that is someone that's been on my bucket list, which I should probably sit down and and make a list of people that I've been meaning to read. And Agatha Christie is one that I have had on my list for a long time. I've seen movies, Agatha Christie movies, and I find them very intriguing, but I've never actually read her books. So this is really inspiring. And most of her books aren't that big. A couple hundred pages. They're not like overwhelming books to read. They're pretty small books. Well, that makes it a lot more approachable. So the next book that you wanted to share with us is one that I have read. And it was The Kitchen House by Kathleen Grissom, which was published in 2010. So do you want to tell us a little bit about it and why it was notable for you? So this is another book that got a lot of buzz like 10 years ago. And this is an example, I guess, of how social media has changed my reading over the last couple of years because I'm not usually drawn to the buzzy books. Like I think Kitchen, The Kitchen House was an Oprah book pick or Oprah book club pick years ago. And this got a ton of attention, which actually made me think, well, I'm not that I probably won't like it. That's not for me. 
but I picked up a used copy at some point over the years and have been meaning to read it because it's held the test of time. Like people are still talking about the book, The Kitchen House, like 10, 11 years later. And this challenged, like encouraged me to actually pick it up off the shelf. And I'm so glad I did. I loved this book. And this was one of the books that really helped me realize that I like historical fiction. I think this is considered historical fiction based on a time and a place, but not necessarily real people. It deals with some really tough subjects, but it's not about real people that lived during that time. And it also was one of the books that made me realize it almost, it's not a memoir, but you get so, I got so invested in the characters in the kitchen house and their lives. I mean, I read it like in two days with tears streaming down my face. So it made one of those ones that made me realize, well, I like fiction that kind of, reads a little memoir-ish, I guess, that deals with hard subjects. Because The Kitchen House is not a book I think everyone would enjoy. It deals with some tough topics of abuse and slavery and just really difficult things. But I I loved it. And I'm so glad. I'm like, why didn't I read this years ago? Because I couldn't stop thinking about this book. And I believe, is there a sequel to this book, Glory Over Everything? I believe is a sequel. I haven't gotten to the sequel. Did you end up reading that too while you were on your backlist challenge? I bought it. It was one of the books books I bought this year, but I have not, I have not read it. I think this book was so emotional. Like I couldn't stop thinking about it. The Kitchen House is kind of an emotional book. So I kind of need to be in the right mood to pick up a book that's that heavy. But yes, I want to read the sequel to it because it sounds really good. Okay. Well, we're definitely going to have to both read the sequel to it because I did love The Kitchen House. I thought it was a beautiful book. And I guess I didn't realize it was published in 2010 because it has been quite a while since I read it. I think I did read it the year it came out. And it it's a beautiful story and I highly recommend it. So the third book that you had on your list was No Ordinary Time by Doris Kearns Goodwin. And this is one I actually haven't heard anything about. So do you want to tell us a little bit about this book and why it's memorable to you? So Doris Kearns Goodwin is an author I've been meaning to read for years. I read probably 50 to 60% nonfiction. I like nonfiction, but her books are like 600 pages. I have to be kind of in a mood to read that. It's a slower read. At least I don't pick up a nonfiction book like that and read it in two days. But I love to learn. I love to learn about different presidents and times in history. So this challenge encouraged me. I have three Doris Kearns Goodwin books, and it encouraged me to finally like, okay, I'm going to read one of these books that I own. I really enjoyed it. It was a slower read. If you like books about history, presidential history, U.S. history, it's a really good read. I didn't really know that much about the Roosevelt's except like what we read in school. It was really was a fascinating book for me to read. And then it kind of made me read other books. I got interested in different topics about the time period, and especially World War II, because it talked about the Japanese internment camps and the controversy regarding that. So then I started going down that path, and I read Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet, I think that's the right title, and then Farewell to Manzanar, which Farewell to Manzanar is a nonfiction book. So I love that Like this book kind of inspired me to read other books. Again, I own those other two books. I just had never read them. So this one book that I finally picked up inspired me to read two or three more other books that I had been wanting to read. But again, this is a book that is a slower read. It's not something probably everyone would enjoy. But if you like nonfiction history, it's a really good read. And it's about Roosevelt, you said. Is that primarily what it's about, this No Ordinary Times? Yes. It's mainly about his presidency, but it does cover his early years, his childhood, his marriage, and then mainly his presidency. And a lot about Eleanor and their life in the White House. 
and then all the way through to his death. A lot about World War II is weaved within the book because that was his presidency. I learned a lot and it's very well written. It's it's kind of journalistic style. So although it's not narrative nonfiction, I didn't find it super dry and boring, I guess, like some nonfiction history books could read. I thought her style of writing, I really did enjoy. Since you're reading like these, like you're saying this author in particular, 600, 700 pages, you had talked earlier that you have a lot of books going at once. So is this something that you're just reading a chapter of at a time when it's it's heavier like this with nonfiction and then you, you know, slowly wake your your way through that book or how does that look for you? Yes, I think that's why I usually have two or three, four books or more going at one time. I think that No Ordinary Time took me like two months to read. So I would pick it up when I was in the mood. Oftentimes at night when I'm tired and exhausted, I pick up fiction, not nonfiction. So definitely a book like this is a slower read that I kind of weave throughout reading other books books like and I don't wouldn't take this huge book to like a doctor's appointment with me to lug it around because it is a big book yes definitely those type of nonfiction books are a much slower slower paced read for me serious secret library by Mike Thompson was your next book pick that you had suggested and it's nonfiction and this one was published in 2019 so it barely screeched by in your challenge. So <laughs> what can you tell us about this one? I don't think this book got a lot of buzz or publicity. Like I really don't know where I heard about it. I could have picked it up at a bookstore. It is about war-torn Syria in like, I think the time period is like 2011 to 2018. And it's written by a journalist. He may have been a TV journalist, but it's written very journalistic style. So although I don't know what would be considered narrative nonfiction, like I, I did read this book in just a few days. I think it's it's like three or 400 pages. It's very well written. And it took me to a time and place that I knew nothing about. I mean, we know about Syria from the news and the headlines. But this was a book that if you love books about books, it's really good. But made me realize again, how spoiled we are in America. And I know that may not come across as quite as I like I want it to. But in Syria, this really is about rescuing books from war-ravaged buildings and buildings that have been destroyed. And these people were risking their lives to create a secret library where they shouldn't have been reading. They shouldn't have been having books. They weren't allowed to do this. And they were, you know, a building would be bombed out. And these they had this group of people that would go into that building and rescue the books and save them because they were so hungry for books and learning. And in America, we want a book on a certain, whatever, military battle or person or even a certain disease. We have 10 or 15 options of books to read in front of us. And we can have them, you know, within days to read or even sometimes within minutes if we just buy the ebook. And in a country like Syria during the war, that's not possible. These people were reading whatever they could find. And it was just a good reminder for me that we take books for granted and education for granted in America. It was just a reminder. Like, I think we all know that if we think about it. But this is a book that isn't super backlist, but I picked it up and I just, I, I loved it. It was a good reminder. Again, it's a heavy, tough topic. I think you can tell by my list of books. I don't shy away from heavy, tough topics. I think it would make a good book club book. There's a lot to, for a book club that likes nonfiction because there's a lot to discuss. It didn't make like news headlines, didn't make the typical headlines. That, again, that one was called Serious Secret Library by Mike Thompson for those of you that want to pick it up. And it was non, it's a nonfiction selection that was published in 2019. So the last book that you have on a your list. Cover. That, it has a beautiful cover. Oh, that's always... Yeah, sorry about that. Yes, I was going to say, it has a beautiful cover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to have to pick it up. 
So this last book that you have on your list is Fire and Beulah by Rilla Askew and why we should read it. I kind of put it on the list for multiple reasons. This is definitely a backlist book. It was published in 2001. I did buy it this year. I bought it. I live in Oklahoma, in Northeast Oklahoma, and I bought it at a bookstore, an independent bookstore in um, Tulsa. They had a section on local books and um, books about the Tulsa race riot, or what is also known as Tulsa race massacre, which is a subject a lot of people, especially if you don't live in Oklahoma, don't know about. And 2021 was the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race riots. And so the local bookstore had like a section of books about local topics and one of which was the Tulsa race riots. And so I picked it up and instantly knew I wanted to read it. And since it was published in 2001, I was like, oh, I can actually buy this book and read it this year. It'll work for my challenge. It is similar to The Kitchen House in the sense that it deals with very difficult, tough topics. It's not an easy read. It is a fiction book. It's based on a time period and an event, but not on real people. So it's a tough read. And this book is probably not for a super sensitive reader. It deals with racial issues and riots. It's not a subject a lot of people know about. This has probably made the national news um, more over the last year because it is the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race riots. It takes place in 1921 and deals with the oil bloom and the instant wealth that so many people had. But it also deals with the racial tension. So between the whites and the blacks and it's Oklahoma. So there's Native American and a lot of the land issues that took place during that time where you own land, but then the oil rights were, you know, being fought over. So it really deals with so much of Oklahoma history during that time period that I think a lot of people don't know about it. This would be another one like The Kitchen House that makes a really good book club book. There's a lot to discuss in Fire and Beulah. I think it would make a really good book club book for book clubs that don't mind taking on difficult challenge or difficult books with challenging topics. So, all right. I'm guessing that you hadn't heard of this book. I hadn't actually, other than the murder on the Orient Express and the kitchen house, those are the two that I was familiar with. The other books on your list, I have not heard of. So I'm excited because this is inspiring me to add some backlist books to my book stack. I'm glad. And I think it's a fun challenge. So I'm not sure I'm going to do it again next year. I'll probably do it again in the future to help me focus on books. So (laughs) I love it. Well, listeners, I hope that this has inspired you. Before we say goodbye to Lynn, Lynn, can you tell us where we can find you online so that we can connect? Yes. My food blog is lynnskitchenadventures.com. And I'm on Facebook and Instagram under that. And then my daughter and I's book site is from our bookshelf.com and we're on Instagram and Facebook under that same name. So from our bookshelf. Well, everyone, I hope that you will follow Lynn and her daughter's adventures with books and all of their book reviews. And I hope that this inspires you not only to pick up some backlist books, but find a new way to connect with your older teens or your college age children, because I think this is really inspiring to find new ways of connection over books and our love for reading. If you like this show, please take a moment to give us a like and share it with your friends. I'm really, really grateful that you are part of this episode. And I hope that you'll listen to some of our other episodes as we discuss all things books. Have a great day.